Du lytter til live fra det Kongelige Bibliotek. Jeg hedder Lise Bak Hansen, og jeg glæder mig til, at du skal høre denne podcast med verdens nok mest omtalte økonom, nemlig franske Thomas Piketty. Vi har inviteret ham på international forfatterscene her i Den Sorte Diamant til en samtale med Rune Lykkeberg, chefredaktør på Dagbladet Information. Thomas Piketty har opnået noget så usædvanligt som at skrive to meget komplicerede, men alligevel folkelige bøger om økonomi, kapitalen i det 21. århundrede og kapital og ideologi, som skildrer ulighed igennem århundreder. Rune Lykkeberg og Thomas Piketty taler blandt andet om, hvordan hans bøger har været med til at påvirke den politiske dagsorden, og de taler også om økonomisk ulighed i samfundet i sammenhæng med det nyligt afholdte amerikanske valg. Jeg glæder mig til, at du skal høre denne podcast, og husk, at du også kan finde instruktionen til denne snak med blandt andet Måns Lykketoft, Birte Larsen og Christoffer Asroni i din podcast-app. Rigtig god fornøjelse. Good evening, Thomas. Hello, hello, hello. <laughs> Good evening to you in Paris. We have the Royal Library here. There's a large audience following you, and we have more than 20 public libraries all over Denmark awaiting your inspiration so they can rebuild the participatory socialism of Denmark. <laughs> okay, thank you. That's great. Let me just ask, ask you first, how are you doing in Paris now? Are you under lockdown? Are you under confinement? Are you free to move, or are you just in your office studying and reading and watching the world? Well, I am in my office right now in, in Paris on my own. I mean, I can go to my office, but, you know, we, we can't have meetings. I, I can't teach anymore, which is, you know, very painful for me because, you know, I love to teach. I love to see my students. I mean, in September and October, I was able to to teach, you know, with a mask and we had uh, half of the seats were empty and we were very careful with all the distance and everything. But now it's not it's not allowed anymore. So I just don't see, you know, I see my my, my daughters and my wife, but uh, I basically don't almost don't see anyone uh, apart from them and my books and my office. So I'm very happy to see you tonight. <laughs> we're, we're happy to see you too. I first want to ask you for your thoughts on the American election. To a certain extent, I've had the impression that your ideas were part of this campaign, that when you came to America, I know you started in America, but when you came to America with capital in the 21st century and you started talking about a wealth tax, at that point, Elizabeth Warren, it was an alien idea to her. And now it seems that you have inspired some parts of the Democratic Party. And I even have a slogan for Biden that I brought with, with me so I could uh, give it to you. Trump rewards wealth, Biden, re- Biden rewards work. So, and they, I think there's no doubt that with your colleagues, Gabriel Sukman and Emmanuel Zayas, your ideas have, have been inspirational for the left of the Democratic uh, campaign. So I just want to uh, have your thoughts here now after the election. What do you think about what transpired in America? Well, you know, I think many people were surprised in Europe when they heard, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren propose a very progressive uh, federal uh, wealth tax. And, you know, let let me remind you, and for those who don't know that, you know, they they propose to have a federal wealth tax with tax rate uh, of up to uh, 8% per year on billionaire, you know, which will mean, uh, you know, someone with 100 billion 
uh, will pay 8 billion in tax every year. So after 10 years, you know, you, you, in effect, you redistribute very top billionaire wealth at a very high speed. And, and this was actually very popular, and this is still very popular in US public opinion, not only among uh, the youth, but also among the entire electorate, and not only among the Democrat electorate, but actually among the, the Republican electorate as well. And some people, you know, in, in Europe find this very surprising, but I think we should remember that for a long time, the US uh, actually used very progressive taxation during the 20th century, you know, from 1930 with Roosevelt until 1980, you know, on average, uh, the, the top income tax rate applying to the highest income in the United States was over 80%, you know, sometimes 90% under Roosevelt and 70% in the 70s. But on average, over this long 1930-1980 period, it was 80%. Because the US at this time were worried, you know, especially in the interwar period about excessive inequality and about resembling you know, old Europe in terms of inequality. So today, this seems very strange to us, but I think we have to remember that every country, you know, is more complex than just one idea. And, you know, the view, and every country, you know, is, is, is looking for some form of economic justice and, uh, uh, you know, countries have some hesitation, so the political trajectories can be chaotic, but we should not be surprised to see in the US today, a, a big concern about uh, about rising inequality, and I think it will it will continue. So we'll see, you know, what what happens with with Biden, and and you know, I I tend to think that maybe you know Biden would have uh, won more easily and would have had a, a stronger majority in Congress uh, if he had uh, pushed some sort of stronger ideas to reduce inequality in the United States. And, and uh, uh, but, you know, this is not the end of the story. You know, the, the process will continue. The debate will, uh, will, uh, will, uh, will, will, will go on. But, you know, we should remember that, you know, even in the United States, you know, there is a big, big concern about rising uh, inequality. It seems also to me that this, your, your new book, your wonderful, very rich and very long uh, book, is more hopeful than your previous book. That is definitely a more optimistic book. Uh, and part of the reason why it's more optimistic could be, this is my interpretation, and maybe I'm absolutely wrong, <laughs> that, that, that you've seen how your own ideas actually have managed to influence political discourse over the last five or, or, or six years. Well, I mean, certainly this has made me hopeful in, in the fact that, you know, ideas can be powerful and that, you know, there is also a big uh, demand uh, uh, everywhere in the world uh, uh, for some form of democratization of economic knowledge and historical knowledge. And, you know, this has also made me aware of, uh, even more aware than I was before, of the responsibility of uh, uh, intellectuals and social scientists and economists like me to, to try to produce, you know, better research to in order to 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 contribute to the to the democratic conversation. So I think this book, you know, first I think it's it's a better book than the previous one. So you know, I'm making progress, and I think it's still a book with a lot of imperfections and you know, on such a, a complicated subject as the history of inequality over time across the world over centuries. 
there will never be a final book. You know, we will always be a sort of in progress. And so I think I am making progress, but you know, it's still very imperfect. Why do I think it's a better book? Well, because first I try to um, uh, go beyond Uh, the case of Western Europe and North America, and I, I, I take a much more global perspective on the history of inequality, looking at the case of India, of Brazil, uh, colonial societies, uh, Africa, uh, China, and, and I, I think th this puts uh, the study of inequality regime into a much broader perspective. The, the second uh, difference, which is related to the first one, is that by expanding the scope of countries and, and time periods that I study. Uh, this has led me to, to conclude that uh, uh, politics and ideology are, are really the prime determinants of the level of inequality. So, you know, the, just the level of economic development and technological development, of course, is important, but it's not the most important. For, for a given level of economic and technological development, there are always very different ways to organize societies, uh, to organize property relations, to organize the tax systems, the education systems, the legal system, the system of frontier, by which I mean, you know, the relation between countries and, and the definition of, of what is a political community, what is a country, you know, this, this uh, you know, there are huge variation, of course, of course, over time, and, you know, the, the construction of the European Union is part of this long construction, but this is also true, you know, in the Middle East, in West Africa, in India, all over the world, and, and this has major consequences for the, for, of course, for the structure of inequality. So all of this has also made me more hopeful in the sense that, um, uh, you know, when you look at this diversity of, of uh, uh, country trajectories, What I find really striking is the uh, incredible imagination of human societies, you know, to design new institutions and to invent new institutions. So, so of course, it's not always going in the right direction, but, you know, on average, over time, uh, uh, you know, this is an optimistic book because, you know, I, what I see on average in the long run is a process of learning about justice. You know, this may seem very idealistic and very naive, but, you know, I think societies over time are actually learning about how to organize themselves. And for instance, you know, today in Europe, you know, we complain a lot and of course things could, could be much better and we could be more equal. And, you know, I'm, I'm a strong believer in that. But, you know, we should remember we have more equality today than a century ago. And this movement toward more equality, which has come through uh, the welfare state, progressive taxation, a deep change in the social and legal rules, uh, has come together with more prosperity. And so this long-run movement toward more equality and more prosperity at the same time, uh, uh, you know, could and should continue. And so I think it's important to, to take stock of this history and in particular to, to, to analyze, you know, what, what has worked well Uh, over the course of the 20th century. You know, there has been lots of disasters, uh, you know, totalitarian regime, uh, uh, Soviet communism was a huge uh, disaster, but there has been also some very successful experience uh, uh, with the welfare state, uh, uh, more workers' rights, uh, co-determination, uh, progressive taxation, and, and, you know, I'm trying to build on this success and to see how, uh, you know, we can 
use this in order to 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 build uh, something even uh, better for the for for the future. And so that's what you know in the end uh, has made me uh, yes more more optimistic in a way. The title of the book is, is Capital and Ideology. And of course, that begs the question, what is actually the ideology of Thomas Piketty? Because uh, on the one hand, you say, that you're, you, you say that you're a socialist. You also say it's not a very important word to you. Social Democrat could do as well. But you say, on the one hand, that you, you, you outline a, theor a theory of participatory socialism. On the other hand, I think it's quite obvious that the principles that you defend and want to develop are classical liberal principles. That in fact they are the the, the foundation of liberal democracy that, that you're defending. And at first I thought that was a contradiction, but maybe the point is that the liberals' ideals can only be realized through a kind of socialism. Is that correct? Yes, I think this is correct. And, and so, you know, I'm, I'm very clear, you know, at the end of my book, Capital and Ideology, uh, in the last chapter, when I talk about participatory socialism, I'm very clear that, you know, yes, this is the ideology I have come up with at the end of my research. But, you know, this is for now, you know, and, and future research and new discussion with you tonight or with, with all, you know, readers and students and citizens that I meet every day, you know, will make me change my mind and, 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 and get to a new ideas. And, you know, I am very clear about that. You know, I, I, I use the term ideology in my book uh, in, a, in a constructive and And, and positive sense. I think, you know, no, you know, of course, I try to use a lot of historical evidence in order to, to revise my own belief system and my own ideas, but I will never pretend that historical evidence alone and social science research alone, you know, can, can lead to one single uh, set of ideas and ideology that everybody should agree upon. This will never happen. We will always need, you know, democratic deliberation. And that's why, yes, I believe in liberal democracy, but I think liberalism, you know, has to be distinguished from, from economic liberalism and, and sometimes the sacralization of property rights and competition that has come historically with economic liberalism. And in fact, I think, you know, over the course of the 20th century, what, what, what has been very successful is the redefinition of property rights so as to rebalance You know, the rights of property owners with the rights of workers, the rights of tenants. You know, being, being a property owner today uh, doesn't mean the same thing as, you know, one century ago, you could fire a worker like you want. You, could, you can fire a tenant the way you want. You know, today we, we've built legal systems which are not perfect, but which are very different from one century ago. And I think this evolution will continue. And so I'm trying to to think of the, you know, the possible next step. And indeed, I, I arrived with something that I call participatory socialism, which is based on uh, two main pillars. You know, one is uh, more uh, workers' rights uh, in companies, and the other one is uh, 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 circulation, permanent circulation of properties through progressive taxation, so as to avoid excessive concentration of property at the top and so as to allow everybody to access a minimum level at, uh, of property uh, at, at age uh, 25. And these two components together, you know, giving more workers' rights 
to elect representatives in the board of companies and also limiting the amount of voting rights that a single shareholder can have. And on the, on the other hand, progressive taxation of property and permanent redistribution of property can lead to a system of, uh, of, of participatory socialism uh, where uh, uh, we have this permanent circulation of economic power and more participation. So I want both more democratic participation, democratic deliberation, and economic uh, participation. And, and that's, uh, that, that's really the, the core of, of, of participatory uh, uh, socialism. Now, you know, some people would say, okay, this is social democratic capitalism pushed to a, to a next, next stage. Okay, you know, I, I think in the end, this is sufficiently different from the idea of, of uh, 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 capitalism based on the, on the power of shareholders and private property holders that I, I think calling it a form of socialism, to me, is a clearer way to, to, express, uh, to express the basic, uh, basic content. And I think, you know, we have to be accustomed to the fact that there are many different sorts of capitalism there are also many different sorts of socialism. You know, the Chinese claim they have invented Chinese way socialism. Okay, you know, if they want to use this word, I cannot be a policeman of language and, and tell people what words they should use. All I can say is that this has nothing to do with the participatory socialism that I am defending. And it is the same, you know, with capitalism, you have very different form of capitalism. So we have to be, you know, open and flexible about language and about this discussion, you know, there's a continuum of different possible capitalist system and socialist system. What's important is to have an open discussion about different possible economic systems. Because I think we've stopped discussing about the possibility of different economic systems, especially after the fall of Soviet communism in the, in the early 1990s. And I think this is part of the explanation from, for some of our problem today, which is that because we've stopped discussing about changing the, the economic system, the political conversation has focused a lot on issues of identity, uh, uh, ethnic uh, differences, religious differences uh, uh, in the US, where you know, we've seen in the recent election you know, this big racial division of the electorate. You know, re remember the, the Democratic Party uh, uh, 50 years ago or 60 years ago was able to attract uh, a lower class uh, voters from all origin, black and white, were, were voting for Kennedy in 1960, uh, uh, or you know, in the 60s or 70s. Today, you know, we have this deep division between you know, the, the uh, uh, black and Latino uh, lower class uh, uh, vote for the Democrat, but the white lower class and poor electorate tend to vote for, for, for the Republican Party. And I think this division uh, is a part of the explanation for, for the difficulty to, to, to build a redistributive coalition. And, and, uh, and I think this has to do with the fact that we, we, uh, we don't really discuss different economic systems and different economic policies. So if all parties in power conduct more or less the same economic policy and have the same economic system in mind, then indeed the, the political conflict is going to focus on fight about identity, about uh, religion, about racial divide. And, and this is threatening to become also a dominant factor 
of electoral uh, uh, politics in, in Europe as well. And, and, and I am very worried about that. And I think some of the solution uh, uh, has to come by, you know, reopening the discussion about, uh, about economic system, different form of socialism. Uh, and, you know, I think Europe in the sort of world uh, geopolitical and ideological competition that is going on. Uh, you know, China is, is proposing a model of sort of state-led uh, uh, socialism, which is very authoritarian, but which can be successful, like to deal with the virus, for instance, uh, today. Well, I think, you know, uh, uh, the U.S. might be proposing more, uh, uh, you know, laissez-faire capitalism, although, as I said before, you know, it's more complicated than that, and they could you know, very well changes in the future, but I think Europe should propose, you know, a different form of participatory socialism or, you know, sort of radical social democracy, renewed social democracy, call it the way you want, which, uh, which, which, in my view, you know, should and could be, of course, much more promising to the world than, uh, than the, you know, the, the, the Chinese model, which I think is going to be a more serious competitor in the 21st century than, than Soviet communism in the 20th century. So, so it's important to, you know, the bottom line is it's important to reopen the discussion about different economic systems and not to be shy about this. But I think that over the last couple of years, not only the success of your books, but the entire debate about globalization, the debate about supply chains, what happened after COVID-19. You've seen a new proposal for globalization from the European Union, and you've seen even Joe Biden, who is not a socialist, his plan, Build Back Better, is another kind of economic agenda. I think you see things are changing at the moment, and you actually have a debate about what kind of economic system do you want. You see, in the European Union, three or four years ago, you would say fair and level playing field, free competition, that was the gold standard. Now they're talking about European champions. And in the US, you have the Biden plan, who does propose a huge reindustrialization of, of America and huge infrastructure plans in order to make a green transition. So are we not, in fact, witnessing a renegotiation, basically, of what was known as globalization five years ago? Yeah, no, I think this is this is moving in this direction. Uh, uh, you know, you you mentioned before the example of the wealth tax debate, which is very clear that you know in the US, uh, uh, as as you said before, you know I, I, when I had this discussion with Elizabeth Warren in 2014, she was very uh, skeptical about the the wealth tax, and you know six years later. Uh, you know, Warren and Sanders were competing about who was going to propose the biggest wealth tax. And you can also see that in, in Europe, you know, in, in Germany, you know, I remember six years ago, you know, I had a, 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 a public uh, a discussion with Sigmar Gabriel, who was the SPD uh, vice chancellor uh, at the time. And he was very skeptical about the possibilities that, that the, you know, we would ever reintroduce a wealth tax. You know, he would say, oh no, SPD, the SPD will never support a wealth tax again. And, you know, I returned to Berlin uh, earlier this year, just before the lockdown, uh, early March, and I had uh, another public debate with the new SPD vice-chancellor, uh, Olaf Scholz, and this time, you know, he was competing with the SPD leadership about who was going to push for the reintroduction of a wealth tax uh, the stronger. So, I, you know, there's an evolution uh, which, which is very clear because I think at some point, you know, you have to 
to change your view given you know the evolution of, of capitalism itself and and, and inequality uh, in 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 our uh, in our in our society you mentioned uh, the the you know the situation in europe you know it is clear that the The pandemic crisis this year, you know, has led uh, to uh, a change in in views, for instance, about the idea of a, of a common uh, public debt, which was something that was completely uh, taboo, uh, uh, you know, one year ago or six months ago, and 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 in Germany, in particular, there has been some big change in in the dominant view about this following following the uh, the pandemic. Uh, so. Yes, things are, are definitely uh, definitely uh, changing uh, in in this uh, in this respect. There's another there's another problem for for tackling inequality, and Alexandria Ocasio Cortez she said after Bernie Sanders lost the primary she said that well she felt that American socialism had one big problem, it wanted to help people who did not want to be helped by socialism. You wanted to tell people that the big problem was inequality and said, well, keep the immigrants out and I don't want to listen to the coastal uh, elites. And it seems that from an intellectual and analytical standpoint, you can very easily show that inequality is a structural destructive force in our society, but it's very hard to make it a public demand to do something about inequality. How do you see this problem? Yeah, well, you know, I think, you know, I am more optimistic than this. You know, I think the view that the, the poor uh, white voters uh, in America uh, are, have become so uh, racist and anti-federal government that there's nothing you can do to convince them and that they will always vote uh, for Trump or for some other Republican uh, racist candidates and that, you know, we should not even try to convince them. You know, I think is a very uh, pessimistic view, and you know, it's also very convenient for some, you know, part of the Democratic Party uh, elite, you know, to say this because, of course, once you've said this, you know, it means you don't need to change your policy, you don't need to do uh, anything to try to to convince these voters. Uh, you know, I I think, in fact. You know, I'm, I'm not saying nobody. I think first, nobody knows what would have happened, you know, with Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders as a candidate. You know, I, I tend to think that she she could have brought to the voting booth more voters uh, from the from the uh, uh, lower income groups who are not voting very strongly in the U.S. and whose electoral participation has also gone down in in uh, Europe. And I think that's very important to remember. You know, if if lower income voters were enthusiastic about Trump or Le Pen or other xenophobic parties in Europe, you know, you would have uh, 80% participation and they would all go and vote, uh, you know, with a lot of enthusiasm uh, for Le Pen. This is not at all what we see, because at the same time, we've seen the rise of these xenophobic parties. We've also seen a huge decline in the electoral participation of lower income voters. So this suggests that, you know, Main, a big part of this electorate, you know, they are just unhappy with the choice or the, the, the lack of choice that is proposed, which is on the one hand, you know, sort of very xenophobic parties, on the, on the other hand, a sort of business as usual, uh, uh, laissez-faire economic policy with little uh, new perspective for redistribution. I, I think, you know, some of the proposals that were made by Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, you know, for instance, to... to um, suppress some of the big 
debt. Uh, you know, in America, you have lots of people. It's not only student debt. It's also lots of people who, you know, have, are indebted and, and have, have big difficulties to start again their life, especially in the absence of a good uh, welfare state. And some of the proposals that were made in this direction by Warren and Sanders, I think, could have brought back to the voting booth, you know, some groups that, that simply otherwise don't vote and many of them uh, didn't vote. In any case, you know, when you see the structure of the electorate, so taking the case of the US and the recent presidential election, where you can see that among the white voters, uh, you know, lower education voters now vote strongly Republican, and, 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 and it's only among the very high education voters that the Democrats beat the Republicans, uh, uh, at least among the white electorate. Uh, what, what do you do with this? I mean, do you, do you conclude that it will be like this forever, that there's nothing we can do? Uh, you know, I think if, 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 the, if the Democratic Party wants to build a, a, a meaningful coalition again, and I think this applies also to a number of social democratic parties in, in Europe, uh, you, have to, uh, you have to change your policy platform so as to, uh, you know, convince uh, this uh, this uh, lower uh, wage and lower education uh, 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 voters that that you have something to to propose to them. I'm, I'm you know I'm not saying it's going to be simple because it it you know this has, this is a long run evolution. So there has been such a disillusionment of large group of voters with respect to these uh, uh, parties that you know it's not going to happen just like this. But so this has to be, you know, you, this has to be a long run uh, evolution of the of the party platform of the discourse. Uh, uh, you know, um, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren were not perfect either. You know, maybe they, they, it could have been better to have candidates that were a bit younger. Uh, 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 you know, maybe a bit less white or at least a bit younger. Or, you know, whatever. You know, we will see what comes in the future. But but I think it's not possible to give up. And, and the and the idea that that you know it's possible to convince uh, um, uh, voters from the lower middle class and and lower income groups uh, from different origins to to vote for the same party or coalition of parties because if we if we if we just accept this division of the poorer uh, voters among racial lines and ethnic lines and religious lines. Um, uh, you know, this is we will. Uh, you know, that's a, that's a very very pessimistic uh, uh, view uh, view of the world and and, and view of what uh, politics uh, and political mobilization can can deliver to to build a more uh, a more equitable society. And, and I think there is no doubt that no matter what comes after this election, no matter what will be the presidency of Joe Biden, whether it will be divided government, whether he will be blocked, it will be a heritage of this election and that in order to appeal to the youth, you have to adopt some of the equality mission. And, and inequality seems to have been now a recognized common problem in, in, in America. So I think there's definitely something to build on. Uh, some, something to build on here. I, I yeah, would, yeah. Yes? Yeah, no, just, just let me mention, you know, I think we, we should also be aware of the fact that, you know, there's sometimes it's also a problem of the, the, the rules of the game and the political institution, which, which uh, do not allow to translate uh, 
uh, an existing majority in the public opinion into a majority of action. So, you know, in the, in the case of the US, if you look at opinion polls, there is a huge majority for, for a billionaire tax. There is a huge majority for an increase in the minimum wage, for instance. Uh, uh, but then, uh, because of the electoral system, you know, the, 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 you don't have a majority in the Senate in particular. But that's you know that's because you have the same two seats uh, in in South Dakota and in and in California. And if it was, but you know, look in in Europe, we we sometimes we make fun of the dysfunctional uh, uh, U.S. Uh, federal institution and and the way they you know they they, they, they were not very good with uh, with getting their election results out, etc. But you know we should remember in Europe that our own federal uh, political institutions you know are even more dysfunctional <laughs> than the than the US institution you know and and I think this unanimity rule on taxation and 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 budget and recovery plan also prevents us from adopting uh, policies which I think a majority of you know European public opinion would like to see Uh, more tax on multinationals and less tax on small and medium-sized companies would like to see more tax on billionaires and less tax on the middle class. But it's not possible in the current European system, even if you have a, a, a majority of the public opinion who wants to do that, to adopt a common a common tax. So sometimes, and you know, that's one of the big conclusions of the book. Sometimes we have there's a need to change the rules of the game. Uh, in order to, to and to change the political rules of the game if we want to change the, the economic uh, policies. It seems to me to be also a point in your book that there's kind of a, an ideological potential in certain historical situation, that there's an interplay between longer ideological movements and then certain specific concrete political situations. And going back to the financial crisis in 2008, we heard a lot of people saying market fundamentalism is over, neoliberalism is dead. I think we wrote maybe 100 editorials about that in my paper, and not all of them were exactly true. But 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 and 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 looking back, it was quite obvious that that there was no ideological package ready. There were no alternative policies there. But now we have this pandemic, and we have this. COVID-19 situation, which certainly creates a new political situation. Do you see this as a historical moment that we're better prepared for than we were with the, with the financial crisis, and that this could be a way of fundamentally renegotiating the order of our societies? Well, we, we are a little bit more prepared than in 2008 because, you know, in 2008, you know, in, in the early 2000, you know, between 2000 and 2005, six, seven, we were just, you know, one decade after the fall of communism and we were still in this sort of era of, uh, you know, uh, free market, uh, uh, you know, fundamentalism and we, we believed. And, you know, myself in the 1990s, you know, I was a much stronger sort of free market believer than when I am today because after, you know, after the fall of communism, you know, this was part of the general intellectual atmosphere. So when the 2008 crisis came, you know, there was little intellectual work and political work that had been done to, to prepare really a new uh, a program, a new platform. So in 2020, we are a little closer, you know, we've made progress in a number of, of directions, but I think it's still 
uh, insufficient. So to answer your question, no, I think unfortunately we are not really ready. And, and in particular in Europe, uh, uh, you know, I think we have, we have to realize that what we need to achieve is, is complicated. You know, I'm not saying it's a simple problem and we just need to push on a button. You know, these are new challenges. So in particular, how do you build, you know, some uh, transnational uh, assembly to adopt some uh, common rules together, for instance, common tax on multinationals and billionaires, but without excessive centralization at a, at a sort of huge federal, in a huge federal state, because of course we want to keep all the decentralization that we need, you know, in, at the level of each country, you know, we are not going to have exactly the same welfare state uh, in Denmark, in Portugal, in France, you know, we, we need some diversity in the institution at the, at the local level, at the country level, but we need at the same time to be able to put together uh, some of the policy tools which we cannot solve on our own. So, you know, global warming, uh, this is not going to be solved within the frontiers of Denmark or within the frontiers of France. Uh, uh, taxation of multinationals, the same. Uh, uh, billionaire tax, uh, the same. Uh, if we want every European student, you know, to move to European universities without paying tuition fees, then we need to have some common financing for the system. Because you know, if, if it's free for everybody everywhere, but you don't have any any financing for this, you know, in the end, uh, our universities are not uh, well uh, funded, and, and you know, the, such a system uh, cannot work. So we need to build this together. And what I am a bit afraid of is that even today, you know, in 2020, you know, we are talking about the recovery plan in Europe. But in fact, uh, you know, we still have this, uh, this unanimity rule on, on budgetary issues and on taxation, which makes it almost impossible to make, uh, to make progress. And I, I think, you know, last July, when a unanimity was reached in the Council of Head of State for this recovery plan, and you know that uh, Denmark, uh, you know, together with Sweden, the Netherlands, you know, we're not really pushing very strongly for the plan, to say the least. And there was a lot of pressure, you know, to try to impose a unanimity decision. You know, I think this is not going to work like this for, for very much longer. You know, I think, I think, in fact, it would probably be better, you know, if some countries really don't want to move in this direction of more solidarity, more common public debt, more common taxation, you know, the countries that don't want to participate to this, maybe they should stay aside. And then the countries that want to move in the direction of majority rule decision making, you know, in some form of, of European parliament for the countries that want to move ahead, maybe some new form of European assembly, because I think we need to put together, when it comes to taxation and, and budgetary decision, you know, I think we need to put together some of the national Parliament members, you know, members of the German Bundestag, the, the French National Assembly, and so on, to, to vote under majority rule, uh, you know, recovery plan, uh, uh, common tax on multinationals and high wealth and high income individuals. And, you know, if, if Denmark or Sweden don't want to be part of this, I mean, to me, I think they should be part of this, and I'm very sad. You know, we need we need you, we need we you know we need Denmark, we need Sweden. But you know, if 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 some countries don't want to be part of it, you know, okay, they should not be part. But then they should not prevent 
other countries from moving in this direction, which unfortunately may require to create separate political institution, at least for a transitory period. Uh, I, you know, I think in the in the medium run and the long run, you know, I, I, I very much hope so that uh, that you know Denmark, Sweden, and all countries will participate, and even that Britain will return to uh, to, to 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 the European uh, uh, Union. But you know, we cannot wait for unanimity. Uh, uh, in order to to uh, to get rid of unanimity and to make progress in in this uh, in this direction, and so I'm, I'm very concerned about the fact that we are still stuck in this system where each country can have a veto power over all other uh, 26 countries, which prevents Europe from taking uh, the right decision in many areas. You know, it's not only taxation; it's also the environment, like, you know, if you want to have a carbon tax at the frontier of Europe, uh, you know, in order to impose the right norms to, to, uh, to uh, China and, and other parts of the world, you know, it's, it's very difficult in the current uh, system. And, you know, Biden, Biden, for instance, just to conclude on this example, you know, is, is certainly going to take some actions against tax havens and in order to tax multinational U.S. companies who uh, have a, a big part of their profits in tax havens, uh, you know, including in Ireland or, or, or the Netherlands. Uh, uh, but uh, and, and that's good that Biden is going to do that. You know, that's better than Trump, that's for sure. But Biden is going to do it in a way so as to increase the tax revenue for the U.S. Treasury. So he's going to bring back to the U.S. a lot of tax revenue. And what is Europe going to do? And I'm afraid that, in fact, because of the unanimity rule, uh, Europe is not going to do anything, and Europe is going to, in fact, to lose a lot of tax revenue, which, which you know, should be taxed at the European level, and and the US is going to be much stronger, you know, in spite of their, of their, uh, you know, complicated congressional uh, uh, institution and parliamentary institution. In the end, they will be able to take decision when it is in the US interest to fight. Uh, tax evasion in a, in a, in a better way than uh, than European uh, institution. And so, are we ready to to address these new challenges? Well, uh, no. I, I think at this stage we are not we are not ready. And and again, I think the solution, if we if we cannot get uh, all countries that want to participate, is to move ahead with a smaller number of countries. You know, I think there's a majority of public opinion today. In Germany, in France, in Italy, in Spain, you know, and these four countries make 75% of the population and GDP of the Eurozone. And, you know, at some point, you know, one man, one vote, you know, should matter in one way or another. And, 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 and I think there's a there's opinion in these countries to move in the direction of a, of a more integrated uh, Europe and, and common uh, recovery plan and tax policies. And, and it's not going to be possible forever, uh, you know, for the Nordic countries in particular, you know, to have a free trade, free capital flows, etc., without some, some solidarity and some international cooperation when it comes to a common uh, tax system and, a, you know, a common uh, environmental policy. Uh, uh, so, yes, these are complicated uh, evolution and issues. And, you know, I don't have the perfect answer on how to organize this, but we will have to move in this direction. And I very much hope with, you know, Denmark and, uh, and you know, everything that Nordic uh, countries can, can, of course, bring to this uh, European uh, conversation. 
Well, I'm afraid it's outside, it's outside of my authority and, and this convention tonight to promise you that we'll go along and, 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 and go ahead. But what I can say is that this is definitely also something, there is a debate in every single European country about this. And my sense is that there is a growing recognition that in order to protect the societies we like and defend the principles we cherish, we must do it with Europe. We cannot defend Danish welfare, Danish environment against the Chinese state capitalism alone. We cannot defend our institutions against the surveillance capitalism of America alone. So in order to defend Danish society, we must act together as Europe. This is a position that I feel and hope is growing influence in Denmark. So maybe we can meet in, in, in one year and, and, and we'll, we'll be together on, 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 this, on this one. I think this is something that is definitely moving very strongly. Something that's been very interesting during COVID-19 is that people have become more skeptical about China and America at the same time. That you see it all over Europe and you see it here as well. And that makes Europe a more attractive political actor, I think, and, and I hope. Well, I must, uh, I must stop my own questions now, because we also have questions from the libraries all over Denmark uh, asking, you, uh, asking you questions. And, and uh, here is a, a question from Aalborg, which is the third largest town in Denmark, fourth largest town. And that is very simple. How do we best fight corruption? <laughs> No, yeah, you know, I, I think they're part of an ideological development. <laughs> yeah, we need more transparency. You know, I'm, I've been fighting, you know, with the World Inequality Lab uh, uh, in Paris and the World Inequality Database, which is a, a very large uh, collaborative project you know, involving hundreds of researchers uh, in all parts of the world. You know, basically what we've been doing is to fight for more transparency and in particular putting pressure on government to release more uh, financial and economic data about uh, income, wealth, who owns what. Uh, you know, look, in China, uh, you know, they pretend they want to fight corruption by uh, putting in jail a few uh, oligarchs from time to time, but they don't release any information about, you know, their income tax system. So, you know, there's an income tax in China, but, you know, we don't know how many taxpayers by income brackets in which city, etc. And I think, you know, if they were to publish, uh, uh, you know, this detailed breakdown by city, you know, in some cases, uh, you know, the people would realize that maybe the income tax legislation is not being applied the way it should be applied. And, you know, I think it's more general than that. I think in, uh, in, in Europe, you know, there's too little... Uh, uh, transparency about wealth, about who owns what. You know, we're supposed to have now at the level of the OECD some automatic exchange of information about cross-border assets. But, you know, uh, this information is not really being used by tax administration. It's not even clear whether it's being transmitted. You know, I come from a country where the the, the, the minister for taxation uh, a couple of years ago, uh, you know, had a, a bank account in Switzerland. And, you know, he thought that he would, he, nobody would notice it. You know, he was trying to make people pay tax in France, but his own money, you know, was in Switzerland. And he thought, okay, nobody will ever discover. And in the end, it was thanks to journalists that the information was, was discovered. But the tax administration in France, you know, had no idea. You know, Switzerland is very close to France. You know, you take the high-speed train in two hours, you know, you can send an email in one second, but somehow the information 
about you know the, the bank account of the minister for taxation in France you know was was not available for the French tax administration so i think you know there's been a lot of talk about fighting tax haven and bringing more transparency but in terms of actual uh, decision Uh, you know, there's a lot of progress to be to be made in this uh, in, in this direction. We're supposed to live in an age of big data, but in fact, you know, big data is for the big private uh, tech monopolies who have data on all of us on our life and on social networks. But in terms of public data, we actually live in an age of big opacity where where there's very little knowledge about who owns what where and and. Uh, Uh, and and you know I think this has to be this has to be addressed. Then I, I have a question from uh, Clara and Hannah from Risco Gymnasium, and and they ask how has Corona changed the equality in the world? The question is not could this be like an FDR moment, but how has cor the coronavirus at this moment changed the inequality in the world? Who has gained and who has lost from the virus? Yeah. Well, first, you know, Corona is not is not an opportunity like sometimes people say to to move things in the right direction. Corona is just bad. It's all bad. You know, it's it's people who die much earlier than they should. It's young people who can't go to school, the students who can't go and and study. So this is just all bad. And in terms of income distribution, you know, it's very clear, you know, what's happening everywhere where we have data, we see that the, you know, the poor are losing and, and the rich on average, and in fact, the richest of all, especially in the high-tech sectors, have been gaining a lot because all the, uh, you know, the, the digital economy uh, has been has been doing very well. But at the bottom of the distribution, you know, we have huge income loss, you know, especially uh, among people, you know, who have very uh, flexible uh, uh, labor market status, you know, in particular, you know, I can tell you, you know, in my country, in France, but it's more general in Europe, we have been encouraging a lot of people in the past 10 years to become self-entrepreneur, you know, to become, you know, the entrepreneur of their own life, you know, with a special uh, status so that they pay less uh, social contribution with less social protection. And we see today, you know, in the time of of, of coronavirus, and then, then you, you, you know, these people don't have those uh, unemployment benefits that regular wage earners have. And, and many of them right now, you know, are in a, a terrible uh, uh, situation. And this also questions the, 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 the issue of property and redistribution of property because when you when you don't own your home and you have a rent to pay and your income has disappeared you know what what do you do and and so we have to we have to rethink you know also the, the, the way we deal with such a, a situation and and uh, i think at this stage you know the, the political response uh, has been uh, has been uh, uh, you know insufficient uh, especially with respect to bottom groups uh, that you know are suffering directly from the the virus in, in in you know in in terms of death rate you know it's it's very clear that the lowest income groups suffer more uh, but also uh, indirectly through uh, through their loss in uh, in in income and and living standards I have I have another question, which is which is the first book, Capital in the 21st Century, were more written by a scientist, whereas this second book seems more to be written by an activist. Uh, and and certainly it's true that 
that in the first book that you have, you suggest a wealth tax. There are policy suggestions, but there's more of a policy program here in the second book. What inspired this, this change from the first to the second book? Yeah, you know, I, I would not put it like that. You know, I think the first book was maybe more a book of an economist and the second one more a book of a social scientist, you know, in the sense that in the second book, I, I am using a lot of work from uh, historians, from sociologists, from anthropologists. Uh, you know, this is really what I, the part I prefer in, in, in the second book is when, you know, I spend a lot of time trying to summarize uh, what I have learned from, from all sorts of books, you know, which you can see in my shelves around me in this, in this office. Uh, and I, I should say also, you know, I, I, I always talk about books and works that I, that I admire a lot, that I found very inspiring. You know, I'm, I'm not going to talk about colleagues, you know, to say bad things about what they've done and their limits. You know, I don't see the point of doing that. You know, there are so many... Uh, good, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, researchers in the social sciences producing uh, fantastic books that allow us to better understand the evolution of societies in India, in North America, in in in, in Latin America, in in colonial societies in Africa, and so uh, you know, this is a book full of you know this kind of historical material. Then. In the last chapter of the book, you know, I also try to go further in the direction of making a proposition. So you're right that this book is also more ambitious in terms of trying to make proposal, you know, about participatory socialism and a different kind of economic system. But you know, I I, I don't do it uh, 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 in a, in a way that sort of uh, you know assuming that everybody has to agree with me. You know, I have you know I think even if people don't agree with all of my conclusion, you know, I, I hope they can find in the book a lot of historical materials that they will find uh, interesting. And you know, I certainly don't pretend that the conclusion I, I present in the last chapter of the book are the only possible conclusion. You know, of course, they are the more consistent conclusion with the evidence I propose in the book, in my view, you know, otherwise I will not propose them, but, but uh, uh, as I said earlier, you know, there will be new research, there will be new deliberation, new arguments that will be exchanged, uh, you know, I, and all the public discussion I have, I had after Capital in the 21st Century, you know, all the, the students and teachers and, and citizens uh, that I have met uh, all around the world, you know, have made me, change my views in hundreds of different ways and you know it will be the same in the in, in the in the future so I think you know this is a book of an open-minded uh, social scientist and, and a citizen of the world uh, you know more than uh, than a book of uh, a militant of uh, or an activist uh, but uh, you know I have uh, you know no problem uh, either way there, there was another question that was posed for, here from the stage before that, that, that you came through, through from Paris. It's that you say that, a, that there's a certain level of inequality that's acceptable, that is justifiable, that, that you're not against inequality as such, and you do not aim for a perfectly equal society. What you distinguish between is, is inequality that can be justified and one that cannot be, be justified. So the question here from Denmark is, the level of inequality that we have now, do you think that is justifiable? Are we on the ideal level of, of, of inequality? Not to, not to ask for your praise, just to ask for, for, for your analysis. Uh, uh, no, I'm sorry. I think this is not the ideal level. You know, I think we can do even better than Denmark. Than, than uh, no, look, I mean, I, I'm not 
I'm not saying we should have full equality because, you know, people are different. People have different uh, objectives in life, you know, have different subjectivities. And, and, you know, so there will always be, you know, different uh, trajectories of individual. And that's good. And, you know, I believe a lot in this, uh, uh, you know, uh, variation in, in individual perspective and objective in life. But, you know, the inequality we have right now in a country like Denmark, Uh, uh, or actually in, in, in Sweden, or actually in France, uh, you know, if you take the bottom 50% of the population, you know, in Denmark today, you know, they would own, uh, you know, less than 5% of total wealth. So, you know, if you take all, everything there is to own in Denmark, you know, buildings, houses, uh, companies, uh, uh, you know, all form of, of property, uh, the bottom 50% of the population owns, uh, you know, less than 5% of the total. Whereas the top 10% of the population, you know, would own uh, of the order of 60% of the total. Uh, is this the best we can do? That's, you know, this is the question I'm asking. Is this, I mean, it's a possibility. You could say, okay, well, you know, that's the best we can do. We've thought very hard about it for centuries and, and many more. And, and, you know, that's just the best. I don't buy that. You know, I think it's possible to do better than that. You know, I, because this also means that, you know, the bottom 50% of the children in Denmark will inherit from very little wealth, in fact, from almost zero uh, inherited wealth, whereas, you know, some people in the rich children, you know, will inherit hundreds of thousands of euros, some millions of euros, and some dozens of millions of euros. And I think it's not, it's not the best we can do. I think we can do better than that. You know, I think we could have a better society, a, a more equitable society, but also a more prosperous society by giving everybody a chance You know, to receive, you know, as I am proposing in my model of participatory socialism, a minimum inheritance. Uh, so, you know, in the proposal I'm making, you know, I think I'm not going very far. You know, this is very modest. I'm, I'm saying, okay, people who today receive zero, which is basically the bottom half of the population, should receive, say, 120,000 euros at the age of 25. And people who today receive 1 million after the progressive taxation in order to pay for that, et cetera, will receive 600,000, which is still a lot more than 120,000. So, you know, we're still very far from equal opportunity. And, you know, the problem is that people pretend that they are in favor of equal opportunity, but when it comes to practical implementation, uh, then people, you know, find arguments, you know, they say, but look, you know, all this... Uh, All these poor children, you know, maybe they don't know what to do with the money. What are they going to do with it? And, but, you know, rich children uh, uh, sometimes make lots of stupid things, you know, with the money. And, and we have no problem with this. And, and I think, uh, yeah, I think we can do better uh, than this. And, and, you know, I think at, at some point, you know, I think we will, uh, we will move uh, in this direction. So, okay, maybe that's difficult to organize with only one country because, uh, you know, you have uh, uh, capital flows, etc. Okay, let's reorganize the way we, we transmit information about who owns what in Europe so as to have more uh, uh, cooperation in this area. You know, let's think about it. I'm not saying we are going to solve the problem, you know, next week or at the next election, you know, this is a long-term process, you know, I'm, I'm taking a very long-run historical perspective on inequality, so we are not in a hurry, you know, we can take time uh, uh, to think about it, but, but yes, I think we can do better than uh, inequality in, uh, in Denmark today. 
Well, thank you very much. I think we should end here because our time is up, but that's a good place to end, and I promise you we'll do our utmost best to, to do better. Thank you so very much for spending your evening with us. Thanks a lot, and uh, I hope to see you, uh, you know, in, in Copenhagen uh, soon, you know, when we can uh, travel again in, 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 in Europe. And sorry that I was not able to, to make it, you know, I would prefer to be there with you tonight, but, you know, with the lockdown, everything, I was not able to travel. So, see you, see you soon. lyttet til en podcast fra det Kongelige Bibliotek. Husk, at du kan abonnere på podcasten i din foretrukne podcast-app. Hvis du kunne lide, hvad du hørte, så del det gerne med andre, der også kunne være interesserede. Hvis du har kommentarer til podcasten, så find Den Sorte Diamant på Facebook, hvor du også kan holde dig orienteret om kommende arrangementer i Diamanten. Podcasten er produceret af Kulturafdelingen på det Kongelige Bibliotek, og musikken er af Søren Jacobsen.